In London, I was quite intrigued that people really were quite fascinated by the title. Participants actually joked about it, inquired whether their flat was disobedient enough. They felt that somehow it was linked with civil disobedience and activism. In Romania, some participants questioned the meaning of disobedience. They often questioned uh, the results of our project and the usefulness of it. They said, uh, will this project help us or will the project help the world in any way? In a sense, in the Norwegian context, I think this kind of co-design and participatory-led projects is in itself a, a disobedient practice, uh, especially if you compare it with the ideals of modernism uh, and these ideals from, from the post-war area that when the buildings we're looking at were built. Welcome to the Disobedient Buildings podcast, an HRC-funded project at the University of Oxford. Our focus is on the everyday lives of people living in aging blocks of flats in three European countries, the UK, Romania and Norway. In this episode, the team will introduce some of the key topics that feature in Season 1. We hope to contextualize some of the conversations we had with a variety of experts working in housing, ranging from architects and academics to designers and activists. My name is Inge Daniels. I'm a professor of anthropology at the University of Oxford. I'm the principal investigator on the Disobedient Buildings Project. And over the past year, I've been conducting empirical research in blocks of flats in central London. For today's discussion, I will be joined by the two postdoctoral researchers on the project. Gabriela Nicolescu and Anna Anderson. I'm Gabriela Nicolescu, an anthropologist and a curator. For this project, I conduct research in Bucharest, the capital of Romania, in a post-socialist context. Yes, hi, my name is Anna Ulrike Anderson and I am a, an architectural historian and also a filmmaker. And uh, in this project, I've been working on Norway and, more specifically, Oslo. I would like to start our discussion by clarifying the title of the project, uh, Disobedient Buildings. So, uh, in my view, uh, the aging high-rise buildings we study can be called disobedient for two reasons. Firstly, they're materially disobedient. So by which I mean that over time, the physical structure has decayed. And this coupled with maintenance and management issues often has led to a real impact on the health and safety of inhabitants. Uh, this material disobedience can also be extended, for example, to unruly interiors, like messy storage spaces or uh, dangerous cables or plugs. But also the inhabitants within the buildings and the flats can be disobedient. For example, their bodies have aged over time, there might be disability issues, or even the makeup of the household might be quite different from what we see as the standard nuclear family. Like people might be living alone, we might have same-sex couples, etc., etc. But I also think that this kind of material disobedience can be linked with more intangible disobediences like sounds, smells, or moods. 
So that's uh, one way in which I would uh, think about disobedience, but also in a more conceptual way, uh, disobedience of the buildings is linked with how they used to be the pinnacle of modernity and technological innovation. But then over time, they have not quite fulfilled this promise. They have failed if you want to sustain the original context in which they were produced and the ideologies they were associated with. Anthropologists are, of course, very aware that the way we conceptualize and frame our research is often very different from how people experience things in practice. And I think it would therefore be interesting to discuss whether during our fieldwork, disobedience did or did not emerge as a team on the ground. In Romania, it's interesting that um, some participants, especially in their 60s, educated in the historical materialism of their time, questioned the meaning of disobedience. And um, they often questioned uh, the results of our project and the usefulness of it. They said, uh, will this project help us or will the project help the world in any way? But uh, after a few months of research, um, I think people realized that they want to show me their life in the blocks and they, they just tell me stories about how they are happy with the life they live or the fact that the block is surrounded by vegetation or some other stories are, are stories of people not liking the, the sounds or the, that the neighbors do or the way the neighbors throw their waste. And they think that by telling me these stories, they implicitly talk about disobedient neighbors. And in episode three, Irinka Paun Constantinescu talks about the lack of trust that Romanians have in state institutions. And I think in this context, the lack of trust uh, in institutions can be connected in very fruitful ways with the term disobedience. Yeah, and I mean, the uh, the borough that I'm focusing on in, in Oslo, it is uh, located centrally in the city, and it is a uh, an exceptionally diverse population who lives in this this area. And it is interesting uh, during fieldwork to see how then individuals who live in in the area position themselves within this very diverse population and and also how they see their own role in in certain frictions that could take place between groups and, and also how certain behaviors then are experienced as disobedience, such as uh, making noise at night, for example. In the fourth episode of the podcast, uh, I speak with uh, Jack Hughes and Elsa Abrahamsen, who's from the architectural firm Makers Hub. In this episode, they speak about the fact that they work with the forgotten people and the forgotten spaces of this borough. And what they found is that participatory methods and also co-designing with the people who live in the area has proven quite powerful in terms of empowering people and, and making people heard in a different way. In a sense, in the Norwegian context, I think this kind of co-design and participatory-led projects is in itself a, a disobedient practice, uh, especially if you compare it with, as he was saying in the intro, Inge, with the ideals of modernism uh, and these ideals from, from the post-war area that when the buildings we're looking at were built. In the seventh episode, I speak with with Tom Davies, who uh, is working on a, a PhD in preservation and works at also School of Architecture and Design. 
And I think he's he's stressing that, you know, in processes of preservation and maintenance and rehabilitation of these buildings, we need to not only think about the, the material elements of rehabilitation uh, and preservation, but also communities and social relations should be preserved. And uh, it's interesting then to see how maybe also disobedient practices and disobedient need to be included in, in these uh, approaches to preservation. Well, that's a very interesting, Anna, and also Gabriella, to look at how in the different cultural contexts, in a way, uh, disobedience was approached quite differently, I think. In London, uh, I was quite intrigued that people really were quite fascinated by the title. And many participants actually, I mean, joked about it and they uh, inquired whether their flat was disobedient enough to participate even in the project. And I think one of the reasons for this is that they um, they felt uh, that somehow it was linked with civil disobedience and uh, activism, that that's what the project was interested in. Quite a few people actually asked me if the project could help them in their fight against redevelopment plans or regeneration projects uh, in the area. But a bit like what Gabriella was saying earlier, in London also people highlighted that other people in their blocks were not obeying rules or regulations. That was quite strong feeling people had about what disobedience was or could be. And uh, examples given to me were things like fire safety, for example, people leaving uh, buggies, but also shopping uh, carts and other things, uh, DIY materials in the hallways that are also fire escapes that was often mentioned, or waste collection where people would leave rubbish in the corridors or actually breaking COVID rules. That was mentioned uh, many times <laughs> during uh, my fieldwork, but people not wearing masks. But it's perhaps interesting to think more generally about rules and regulations. And this uh, actually became quite central to our project in many ways, because we were supposed to start our fieldwork in all three countries in May 2020. But then, of course, COVID happened and uh, we had to rethink our research. And in a way, our own project became disobedient, I think, which is quite uh, um, hilarious, if you want. So we had to rethink, and how could we do in-depth research from afar? How could we collect materials for exhibitions when we were not able to meet people even for a long period of time, or not even able to leave our homes, if you want? So uh, we designed and circulated research packs that contained a number of tools and these tools were again disobedient in that they were not the digital online methods that many people were using, but they were uh, paper-based and low-tech tools uh, like postcards, disposable cameras, maps uh, that allowed uh, participants of all ages um, and all backgrounds to study their own homes in their own pace and time. So during the podcast, uh, we asked the experts participating in our um, interviews to engage with some of these packed materials. And so I thought it would be interesting if you, Anna and Gabriella could tell us how um, the packs were actually received by your participants in the field. Yeah, I mean, it's it's been very intriguing to, to get these packs back. Uh, it's always uh, exciting to see postcards arriving in the post or 
with the pack being returned. And I think one of the things that I found quite incredible is that um, when when you do receive a pack and you complete it in your home at your own pace, at least from my participants, I do feel that they are being quite honest and, uh, you know, sharing, you know, intimate stories and about their own lives, which has been quite uh, wonderful to see. In terms of the tasks, I think my personal favorite is the disposable camera. And I got feedback from many of the participants who, who enjoyed it, but also felt quite frustrated because we're so used to taking photos with our cameras now on the phone then we could just delete, we could look at them, we could, you know, change small things. Whereas uh, a disposable camera, you have one attempt <laughs> and you can't look at it until uh, after the film has been processed. And, and we're not used to taking photos in that way, most of us. Uh, so people felt a bit like they were uncertain. Did they, you know, manage to make the flash work? Did they frame what they wanted to frame with, with the camera? But I think the result when we got it back was something that was quite raw and unedited and sometimes, you know, filled with, let's say, mistakes. And to me, that, that, that also, again, like gave a great insight, I think, in, into the everyday lives of, of people's homes. And, 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 and the result is something that is highly, highly subjective. Some participants, they've been curious uh, of uh, why we are asking the questions that we are asking. So others experience the PACs as a bit unconventional. I think we're used to uh, participating in research studies. You, you get um, a form to fill out and boxes to tick. And then we have very, very open questions. And for some, that was refreshing and fun. But others felt that the openness actually was a bit frustrating because then they started wondering what is it actually that we're looking for uh, and they thought it was difficult to answer the questions but I think what what I really enjoyed with the packs is that you know we, we receive the packs and then we do follow up with conversations uh, if we were able to meet outdoors we could go for walks and walk the route of the map people drew of the neighborhoods uh, or we would bring photographs they've taken and then those photos would be conversation starters. And the, the material we got back definitely shows what the participants are interested in. And then that could kind of guide the questions and then lead us into understanding more about the everyday lives of people living in blocks of flats. I, I felt that... Um... The packs were uh, a wonderful tool, especially in this um, in these times uh, of of the COVID pandemic. And um, I think that generally participants in Bucharest responded well to the packs. Uh, they took time and invested a lot of uh, energy and creativity into taking good images, into making nice uh, maps, writing postcards, and collecting different items for um, our um, possible exhibition. A participant in a social block um, told me that he did not clean on purpose his flat before taking pictures because he wanted uh, me to see his modest income. But uh, he's, an, he's an exception. Most of the people invested a lot of time into cleaning their flats before taking pictures. 
And uh, uh, I think I was talking to one participant. She said that one day she spent one day to clean the flat and at the end, take the pictures, write the cards. Eight hours she spent to to do everything that um, she was um, she wanted to to fill in. Among Romanian participants, uh, many people were not sure that they completed the tasks correctly. And they uh, were asking me, did I took the picture right? Are, uh, do they have enough light? What a pity I didn't do the pictures. And very often they continued um, to take other pictures with their own mobile and send me uh, other images through via WhatsApp. For the podcast, I have used, for example, um, materials I draw on on dust bags because Bucharest is one of the most polluted capitals in Europe and um, indeed the discussion with uh, Stefan uh, Genciulescu from episode three uh, went into that direction so after discussing the dust bag uh, Stefan Genciulescu started to talk about um, the number of cars in Bucharest and how polluted the city is Then I also uh, uh, wanted to draw on the letters that participants wrote. Many of them uh, have a common fear um, um, and they express it through through the letters. Um, It is related to earthquakes. And um, it's it's interesting to see how from a letter uh, and from the fear of one of the participants about earthquakes, uh, Stefan Gedjulescu explained a very interesting um, topic that not many of us would imagine. For example, walls that exist inside people's homes. If one person cuts one important wall in their flat, the entire structure of the block is compromised. And for the Romanian context, this is, um, it's very important because earthquakes uh, happen quite often. Uh, They are not very strong, but when they are strong, they they, um, had huge impacts and many people died. I think I would very strongly agree with both of you that the packs were a positive, if you want, a positive surprise. I shall say that because I've conducted lots of previous research in people's homes. I always saw the packs as a, a emergency measure. I think as Anna said that uh, we would follow up uh, with field work, that this was just something to, uh, to get us through the pandemic and the lockdowns initially. But I was surprised to see how well the packs worked. So it was a bit of an experiment, I think, where we weren't sure what was going to happen. So where we tried to salvage as much as we could uh, from the project and use this new methodology. But again, like Anna mentioned, me, I myself as well, I was... Um, intrigued by how intimate the packs or the level of intimacy of the packs better and how they enabled me to get to know the people without even meeting them, if you want. But also the other way around, I think it's the first time I've conducted research with people about their homes where uh, they were very open from the start. Normally it would take me much longer for people to open up like that and tell me stories, quite um, personal stories about their homes and their lives within. Perhaps another thing that occurred in London with uh, the packs was that people really loved handmade nature of them. And uh, I actually made them myself, all the packs, actually 120 I've counted in my kitchen in London. So it was a labor of love, I can say. And then of course they had to be shipped to Bucharest and Oslo. And uh, at that time, there were only the courier services and the 
very trusted post office <laughs> that enabled us to continue our research in that way, I think, which is also fascinating if one thinks about it. But I think in London, this stress on the handmade is uh, very much linked with uh, a real boom in craft and making, particularly during lockdown one, I think. So people really took in a positive way to that. Then uh, another uh, point, I think, in London with the PACs was that a lot of the people actually that I could reach with the PACs were living on their own, many of them elderly. And I think it was a really welcome distraction for many reasons when they were stuck alone at home. And people have really mentioned that, that uh, it kept them focused or uh, it gave them something to do, if you want. Uh, but also as uh, lockdowns um, diminished or, or things opened up, uh, people talked about doing the task together with children and grandchildren and the packs becoming some kind of social activity, which I think is something I, I hadn't expected that would happen. So that's uh, uh, positive things about the packs. But I also think, uh, uh, as Anna mentioned already, we should think a little bit about the limitations of the pack. We talked already about the photographs and the people's frustration with not being able to edit. But other limitations, for example, uh, I'm very aware that there were many people that we could not reach with the packs, minorities, migrant populations, uh, but also uh, people that were less used to the, the way the packs worked, like they were art, craft-based tasks like taking photos, making maps, but all the, also issues with language because uh, quite a few of the tools uh, were text-based like writing postcards, writing letters. So I think from the feedback I got that people felt uncomfortable or unfamiliar with how the packs worked. And often uh, packs got lost, they were never returned. I think many for that reason, but also uh, participants later when I contacted them and we could meet, they were happy to participate, but they didn't want to do the packs, for example. Uh, and finally, perhaps to mention, of course, during a time of such serious crisis as we had with the pandemic, uh, many people <laughs> might have thought this is not a thing, an important thing to do at this time. And I think this raises questions about even doing research during a disaster, I think, which is something um, that anthropologists have been thinking about a lot uh, recently and whether um, people are at all ready to do this kind of research during the pandemic itself while it's happening. Thank you for listening to the Disobedient Buildings podcast, edited by Anna Anderson and produced by Jack Super. If you want to hear more, go to our website at www.disobedientbuildings.com or search for a podcast where you normally find your podcasts. In the next episode, I will take you to London to speak to Danny Dorling, Professor of Geography at the University of Oxford. What are the most pressing housing issues in London today?